Hello, and welcome to the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Freckleton. Have you ever noticed how fear stops us from creating and sharing our best work? Join the Fearless Storyteller as we explore the heart and soul of writing stories, songs, and scripts that sell with the people who write them. Each guest has their own unique hero's journey and insights into the intersections between limiting beliefs and success. What's my story? In 2007, I was divorced, in debt, stuck in a soul-sucking job, desperate to have a meaningful, fulfilling life, but not sure where to begin. I made a simple choice at the time, to start honoring my yes and to start speaking my no. Consequences be damned. After all, how could my life possibly get any worse? I began the long path of becoming a professional songwriter, finding my fearless voice along the way. Now, I'm living my dream life as a husband, father, and professional storyteller. Hello, listeners. As I record this, it's May 21st, and I'm preparing today's episode, which I think you're going to enjoy. It's pretty stellar. Um, I'm approaching my one-year anniversary, and this has me contemplating um, basically my entire approach. I really enjoy having the interviews as they are, and I don't expect that to change so much, but the surrounding processes around that, um, foremost among those, I want to hear from you. I want to know um, what's working for you, what kind of inspiration you're taking away from this, what you're doing when you listen to the show. Um, I want some sort of feedback loop, and maybe there's different ways to get that. Um, one of those might be having a Patreon and special perks for people. I know everybody has a Patreon. I actually have something set up, but I don't have any subscribers to that despite the fact that I have hundreds of listeners that regularly listen. Um, you know, one of the things I want to know, um, maybe you can reply and give feedback, is do you want to hear more of my story? Like some podcasts have an intro segment that just kind of gives a regular weekly update about how things are going. You know, maybe you want to know what I'm up to, what I'm working on, what I'm struggling with where I'm having success, because don't we all like to hear about all of that? I know I do, I value that. Um, but this is a long-form interview podcast, and so I know the episodes are already pushing an hour, as is, so I do like to keep things brief and focused as well. But um, in the episode notes, you'll usually be able to find a way to contact me, or you can just look up Ethan Freckleton or email me, Ethan at EthanFreckleton.com, or join the Facebook group, which is definitely linked in the episode notes, and join in. Alexis D. Craig is a lifelong reader and storyteller, but it wasn't until she developed anxiety over her ongoing health challenges that she turned to writing as an anchor. Now, writing and publishing her paranormal romance stories are her form of anxiety management. Devoted to improving her craft and embracing feedback, she loves everything about the process. As she says, quote, Even when it's terrible, it's still fun, unquote. Listen along to learn more about paranormal romance, 
writing with a universal lens, and how Alexis approaches telling the best story possible. Well, Alexis D. Craig, a.k.a. Lexi, welcome to The Fearless Storyteller. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And for people who may not know who you are, what you do, what would you like to say about yourself? Uh, I am a romance writer, but uh, it's more than that. I write uh, a lot of paranormal fiction, and um, eventually I know I'd like to fancy myself a screenwriter, but, you know, that's mm -hmm. a lot of work, and that's still a work in progress. So right now I'm a uh, romance writer with a goal. <laughs> a romance writer with a goal. I like that. And why do you write? My head is very noisy. Um, I always have, I always have a lot going on mentally. Mm. And so I view this as a way to clear out space to have other thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, uh, especially when I'm in the middle of a story, it's very, it's, it's very crowded and it, I get very anxious and so this is kind of a, a way to manage anxiety for me. Okay. Um, yeah. I have a lot of, uh, when I can't physically write, I have uh, recordings on my phone. And so I've got like 200 plus recordings of snippets of conversation and character and dialogue and things like that because I, I'm writing all the time just to manage the anxiety. Wow. Oh. Well, that's that's a really happy outcome <laughs> of having dealing with and managing anxiety. I would say. Um, so, since you brought it up, uh, you know, a lot of us deal with anxiety and have our own relationships with that. And like, how does that? What's your relationship with anxiety, and um, how did that lead to writing? Um. Honestly, writing came first. The anxiety came later. Okay. <laughs> well, no, the anxiety grew. Um, I got sick a few times. Um, sick, capital S, not just, you know, flu. Yep. And um, life um, became very untenable um, for a lot of that. And writing became kind of my, my stand-in uh, anchor. Mm. And so... You know, when I feel the anxiety becoming very, very pronounced, um, I will go and I will read and I will write. And I, unfortunately, to a certain degree, I kind of withdraw from other people in my life. But at the same time, everything going on in my head is very loud. So mm. the writing helps manage that and attenuate that to the point where I can start interacting again. Yeah. And was that like an like just an obvious connection from the get-go when you started like dealing with that, um, that yeah. writing would be something that would help? Um, kind of. It started with reading, honestly. It started with reading and, you know, really enjoying stories and really enjoying comic books. And then, you know, when you run out of that, it's like, well, I want to, I want to have more things to read. And mm -hmm. the easiest way to have more things to read is to write things. <laughs> spoken like somebody who's been writing <laughs> that might not be an obvious connection for people who weren't al already writing because um, I hear anxiety comes up as a reason for people not to write a lot of the time I've, and it's very rare for me to hear that that's 
the reason why somebody writes or is able to get in that chair and write. So, um, it does every once in a while it becomes overwhelming, but those are the times when I usually retreat to reading. Mm. Um, my goal is a book a day, generally speaking. Um, and so, uh, you know, when it, the anxiety is too pronounced, it becomes a book and a half, maybe two books a day. And then eventually I will get to the point where the reading is not enough for me. And then I go back to writing. Mm. Wow. A book and a half a day. <laughs> <laughs> You're one of those legendary mythical people that we hear about. <laughs> I love reading. I've been reading since I was three years old. I pretty much taught myself. And <laughs> I I have been reading forever. Um, my parents were very um, my parents were very specific, especially um, I was a latchkey kid because I'm that old. Mm. And um, my parents' idea of keeping me in the house, especially during the summer when they worked, was I would get up in the morning with them, and they would say, "Okay, well today you're going to read, you know, the Illustrated Man, and so we'll have a conversation about science fiction when you get home." And that would be my thing. And so I had like a book report a day. <laughs> well, and so I had to get very good at A, reading quickly, B, absorbing it, and C, being able to discuss it, you know, cogently. Wow. So I, I take it your parents were readers then? Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yes. All, all books, all the time. Nothing was ever off limits. Um, if you can reach it on the shelf, you can read it. Mm. And that was pretty much the... Uh, the standard and that still is the standard there's books all over the house i am a terrible human being to move my poor husband um has to deal with the fact that my books are at least i take a quarter of the truck <laughs> because yes books are everywhere i'll tell you what kindle has saved my marriage because my kindle is full and i can buy as many books as i want and nobody else is getting their back broken because i have a book habit <laughs> My mom had a lot of books when I was a kid and I was a Navy brat. And so I'm very aware of the impact on, of books on, on moving. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get into writing? How did that start? Um, honestly, I'd say it started off more with kind of uh, oral storytelling. Hmm. Um, let's go probably I'd say 10 or 11 you know just telling stories outside playing on the swing sets just doing silly stuff and then as I got older I had friends who were very into fan fiction and mm. so that became a very highly utilized outlet for me writing wise um, lots of extra terrible you know 13 year old teenage girl fan fiction. Some of it's not so terrible. I've, I still have lots of it actually saved, but um, some of it just, it's really fine that it never sees the light of day again. That's okay. <laughs> That's fun. What were some of the things that you were writing fan fiction about? Oh my goodness. X-Files. X-Files was huge for me. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I know that now um, a lot of people are getting back into a lot of the 80s rock bands, a lot of the 80s metal bands. Um, uh, Motley Crue seems to have a burgeoning uh, fic community going on right now. Does it? Um, yes. Yeah, <laughs> which was really quite stunning to discover because back in the late 80s, early 90s, that was us. 
yeah. and we were those things. And so um, we were the advent of real people fic, which has its own issues, but we're going to let that go. Um, but yes, X-Files was huge. Um, lots of TV shows, lots of TV shows, the occasional movie. I tried Star Wars. That did not work out well. Um, and I have lots of... My big thing is side characters. I like interesting side characters. So not necessarily main characters all the time, but like side characters from the show would have very fun and adventurous lives in my world. Mm. Right. Somebody that seemed fun to maybe hang out with, but you didn't get to know a lot about. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Filling in the blanks is always a good time. Right. And I could see a, like an obvious connection from X-Files to paranormal romance. Oh, yes. <laughs> very much so. <laughs> yes, very much so. God bless Mulder and Scully. Um, <laughs> I called them Scolder. But, yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That was... Um, were you on the Gossamer Project? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> it's a legitimate question. Um, it is a legitimate question. I I was more on the sideline to this, but I definitely knew my share of people who were all in. Okay. Well, we were back. This is back when prior to HTTP when it was FTP. Mm-hmm. Um, and because, again, I am that old. Um, Telnet, maybe. Yeah, yeah quite so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, late 80s, early 90s. And um, writing, you know, in high school, writing in college. Um, but the Goss- you, you know what the Gossamer Project is, I'm assuming. Tell me. My listeners certainly may not. So. Okay. Um, the Gossamer Project is kind of the precursor to fanfic.net or uh, archive of our own AO3 is uh, how it's known colloquially. And it's a compendium where all these authors would contribute fan fiction. And it was all devoted to one specific topic, this being the X-Files. And so it was searchable. Um, It had filters in the same way that AO3 does. It was really super interesting and it was enormous. It was something like 75,000 at a, in its heyday it was huge absolutely so huge was this on the internet or was this like a dial up bulletin board site? no no this was this was on the internet um, okay. i don't know if it's archived somewhere i'm sure someone somewhere has an archive that's just terabytes of incredibly interesting Mulder and Scully porn <laughs> is that what you were writing at 13 uh yeah yeah cuz you know it's good to have goals. It's aspirational more than it was um, informative at that point. Right. And, you know, I suppose, you know, shows like that, they only hinted at the romance and you're kind of kept waiting. Absolutely. I, uh, I still curse Chris Carter. That's a, my poor husband had to hear lots of anti Chris Carter rants. So, (laughs) (laughs) so you started writing fan fiction. um, Yes. And was writing something that stayed with you or did it drop off at some point? Um, no, it's pretty much stayed with me. It's um, short stories, uh, although I've really gotten away from short stories and I've um, kind of advanced to where I really, I have a difficult time encompassing something into a short story. 
for whatever reason, my idea of short is something in the neighborhood of 30,000 words, which is really not short yeah. by any definition. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of with you on that one right now. <laughs> you know, I, bit of a I, curse. If I could say it in 15,000 words, I could. I would have. I can't say it in under 70. I'm sorry. Um, so yeah writing has always stayed with me I didn't publish for a long time because you know um, I didn't have um, I didn't have the confidence honestly I I I would read it like okay it's fine and you know my friends would read it and they're like well this is great why don't you you know do something with it nice I didn't have an idea that anything I wrote would be readable by other people, that other people who weren't emotionally invested in me as a person would enjoy it. So mm. um, that didn't happen until probably mm, early 2000s. Mm, what changed? Um, I have no idea, honestly. <laughs> I have no idea. The, last, the first story I wrote that I felt really confident about was Imminent Danger, which ended up being my first novel. Mm. And it was... Um, it was all original. It was all, um, I mean, there were, there were so many things about it. I, I want to say it was like 2005, 2006. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read it and I'm like, this doesn't suck. And uh, from an objective point, the idea that I would read something of mine that didn't suck, mm-hmm. you know, was a revelation. And mm-hmm. so I'm like, hey, might be able to actually do something with this. Mm. And we're always, you know, have an incredibly high bar. Usually I think our taste exceeds wherever we're at and grows as fast as we do. And so when you say this doesn't suck, or when you said that, like, what were you looking at? Do you remember? Um, the, the descriptions, the, the way that it moves, um, as a writer, you know, you have an idea of how you want the story to go, but you also, I want stories that are beautiful to see and experience in addition to read. I Mm. want the reader to have a visual experience because for me, it's a visual experience. I am, I'm a court transcriptionist. I write in front, what's in front of me in my head and that's me writing it down. Mm. Um, But I want the reader to have a similar experience and at the same time, I don't want to write using words that are not accessible to most people mm-hmm. and hitting that on both sides is difficult sometimes. Um, and this was a, this was my first piece that I felt was a original enough, b authentic enough Mm. The characters felt real, the situations felt real enough, and the overall images painted by the words worked for me. Mm. Mm. And so how long had he been writing by that point? Um, 13 years, 14 years. Yeah. I mean, so you'd been going that long. At what point were you like aware that maybe you were judging your work or holding it in a critical eye? Because I imagine it started as a fun thing, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's always, it's always a fun thing. Even, even when it's terrible, it's still fun. Um, <laughs> I, have, I have a hard drive full of, it's terrible, but it's still fun. Um, mm. And 
I don't know. I think I've always, I think I've always judged my work because being someone who reads a lot, um, I'm, I'm exposed to a lot of different people's styles Mm-hmm. And the way that their characters interact, the way they describe things, um, the way they construct their storylines. And so I think as a writer who reads a lot, you always kind of surreptitiously comparing what you do to what someone else does, especially if what someone else does is so mind-blowingly awesome. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at some point you have to acknowledge that. But at the same time, I think it's good to have goals yeah, and to keep pushing forward and to keep advancing the craft. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned that word craft and like, so obviously when you're reading, you can pick up a lot in craft. Does it, I don't know. Did you ever take any classes or anything where like maybe you were workshops or talk with other authors to, maybe hone in on what those things were. Yeah. Absolutely. When I was in college, um, I was in college for a couple of years. Um, I took uh, creative writing courses in addition to pre-med because I'm a masochist apparently. And (laughs) my creative writing courses were extremely helpful in terms of story construction, in terms of character construction. Um, I have groups of friends that I write with now that, I give them stories that I, or things that I'm working on and they give feedback and feedback is invaluable. You know, I think this scene could be a little tighter. I think you need to explore this point more. I think this dialogue works, but I don't think it's strong enough here. Mm. Um, Having friends who are honest with you, who are emotionally invested in you as a person, but also they understand and appreciate that you want this to be a good story for everybody, not just them. Mm-hmm. Um, is really helpful. Mm. I do view, view that as like having beta readers who are honest with you is an important part of the craft because you get to see the parts of the story that you're missing because if you're, I'm very visual. I'm very visual in how I view the story, how I write the story and how I wish to convey the story. And so having those visuals in front of me, but being able to only convey it through words, sometimes you can miss things that are obvious to me that are not obvious to the reader and so you want to be able to fill those holes in as best you can mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you're taking feedback and i know that's not always an easy thing um i had to learn that actually that was a that was a learning process um my dad had a very good um a very good a piece of advice for me about that mm. you are not married to every single word you are married to the story. Tell the story as best you can. Every single word is not precious. You have to be able to find the best ones to tell the best story. Mm. And that helped me a lot because it, it gave me a, a much more externalized perspective. It's not personal. Okay. It's, it's story-based. It's, it's not personal. Yeah. And yeah. Cause that first, that first book, editing that first book was so painful and I was just so emotionally overwrought over that editing that book and it needed it it was not like you know the most perfect piece of you know james joycean fiction you've ever read no no not at all um it needed a lot of help because you know i'm i was a brand new at that point unprofessionally published writer and Mm. so 
after that, it became a whole lot easier to embrace editors and embrace feedback because the idea is if someone feels it's important enough to convey to you that there's something that could be better, then you should feel it's important enough to at least give it a look at and to give it um, a glance and possibly incorporate the idea. Right. And when you're getting feedback, I imagine there's different types of feedback. Like um, sometimes it might be, hey, I think you were trying to accomplish this and maybe you didn't. And sometimes it might be, hey, I, I wish you had written it this way or I wish the story was doing this. Um, are both of those types of feedback valid? I'd say the feelings are valid um, as far as how I would receive them. Um, it's two separate things. Um, I see we're trying to accomplish this and I think it could have been done better to me is a, a, with, you know, an example, obviously um, is a little more useful to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I appreciate that. Um, once you release a story into the wild, it doesn't necessarily entirely belong to you anymore. Mm. And so having someone wanting a story to go in a different direction is a perfectly valid um, reaction to a story. But I wrote it the way I wrote it for a reason. And I'm, I'm not sorry for that. I'm, you know, we're both correct in that statement. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I suppose that's where there's room for fan fiction too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm good with that. I'm fine with that. Yeah. And so, so you have this group of friends that are writing friends and like, I imagine that's a valuable thing beyond oh, just the feedback. Yes. We've been friends. Um, we actually met in a fan fiction group um, and we were um, a collection of fan fiction writers who all have day jobs, who all have really pretty heavy duty and intense day, jo day jobs. I was police dispatching. Another friend was working in an ER. Another friend was a chef. And so we had a lot of, um, this was kind of our escape from our real lives. And uh, we actually all decided one time to get together. You know what? We should all just hang out. We live all over the country. We live separately all over the country. We're not in the same city. We're not even in the same state. And so we all decided to get together. And so we did. And we've been doing that now for, well, this would have been our ninth year this year. But unfortunately, with everything going on, we had to put that off. Um, yeah. So we're making plans for next year to go completely bananas um, <laughs> for our 10-year anniversary. And um, yeah, they're, they're friends outside of just the writing. We get together once a week and basically it's cocktail hour where we talk about our weeks and sometimes we talk about what we're working on and writing wise. And yeah, it's, um, it's friends outside of just the writing. Yeah. And not to take anything away from other friendships, but it, it, I imagine it's different having friends who also are doing the writing process. Yes, they um, they can appreciate a little more when I say I'm in editing mode and I have absolutely no language skills whatsoever. And uh -huh. so we're drinking in the corner, ignore me. And they can appreciate that. And they know that it's not me being antisocial. It's me being incapable of being social at that point. Mm. 
Mm. Um, yeah, they um, having friends who appreciate that sometimes if I'm looking at you and I look like I'm not all there, I'm there. I'm just not engaged in this, and they can they understand them. That that's not me being rude, and it's not them being rude. It's it's you know other people. Hey, I want to write this real quick. Okay, go ahead, do that. Um, you know they understand, and it's nice to have people who understand that it's not. I'm not purposefully being a terrible human being. I'm just occasionally not very social or not socially adept. And <laughs> the stuff going on in my head is a little loud right now. Right. And so may, may need to deal with that for a little while. Yeah. yeah, I can, I can see that. And I guess my next question is a little unrelated to that directly. It's who are your readers? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. Um, I would, <laughs> That's I'm always, a fair answer. I'm, I'm always kind of pleasantly surprised when people buy my books, mm-hmm. <laughs> just because it's still so marvelous um, yeah. and so cool. Uh, so um, I know that um, having worked for the PD for a long time, the police department for a long time, mm. uh, some of the officers' wives um, – have bought my books, which has been very cool because <laughs> we're like, so my wife's reading your book and I love you. I just want you to know that. And I'm like, Oh, okay, great. That's great. Um, some of the, the um, conversations that have expounded out of that have been substantially more lurid than I'm sure your listeners would be, would want to know about, but yes, they needless to say, the officers are very happy that their wives are reading my stuff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. Um, <laughs> that's great. Um, I mean, that's that's a real social benefit to be yeah, providing. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And I just um, I know I've spoken to some fans who've just really embraced, especially the um, the shifters, the uh, paranormal aspects of the stories, and are really a fan of uh, the way I'm going with those sci-fi wise, and because I'm seeking out different. Um, aspects of paranormal lycanthropy, um, not just werewolves and bears and things. I'm looking at birds and lizards and other things that are interesting and different and not necessarily the traditional way to go with that. Um, so yeah, my readers are just, I'm assuming they enjoy sci-fi and they enjoy a story that's a little more romance oriented. I, yeah. I honestly don't know. For shifters, right? This is a big thing, a big trope, and you're mm-hmm. you're twisting that. I guess my question is, what is it about shifters that is so interesting to to people, yourself included, like in terms um, of story? I guess. In terms of story, the idea of having this whole other life that no one really knows about except people close to you is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea of having this part of your life that would be seen as publicly abhorrent, but is accepted in another context is really good. Um, And not necessarily publicly abhorrent, but there are people who are very, you know, Stigma kind of attached to it. Yes, stigma attached to it. Um, and honestly, as a bi kid growing up, you know, having this part of you that you can't really talk about and having this part of you that you're not sure the whole world is going to accept 
Mm -hmm. Um, And having these characters who are in a similar situation, a part of them that is intrinsic to them that they can't necessarily share with everyone is very relatable. Mm -hmm. Um, And honestly, I think werewolves just, um, there's a certain sexiness about werewolves. I don't know why. They're usually, you know, much taller. They're usually, you know, very strong. It's very, it's a very specific archetypal trope physically. Right. And I think the physicality of that is very appealing um, and to readers who are into that. Um, so in addition to the overall social context, there's the, the physical context. And like, I blame True Blood. Uh-huh. Um, I blame Alcide for uh, some of my werewolf angst because Joe Manganiello is just wow. Um, and that really kind of formed a lot of my you know, werewolf love right there. Mm-hmm. So romance itself is like the most like consumed category of fiction. Mm-hmm. And yet it contains a lot of stigma, right? Or, or less gravitas sometimes. It's, it's assigned a lot less gravitas, but that doesn't mean it's not there. Um, I think honestly, um, part of the reason that romance is discounted has to do with a fair bit of misogyny. The idea that, you know, the stories written by women for women Mm -hmm. are not necessarily as inherently important as stories written by men. Um, And Mm. not all romances are written by women for women. I don't write my stories for women. I write my stories for everyone. Mm. Um, The fact that a lot of women read them, cool, solid, awesome. Um, but I don't write my stories with a female gaze in mind. I write my stories with a, an eye towards a much more universal uh, consumption. Mm. Um, and, but because I write romance, it's automatically given that cast of I'm writing it for women. Right. That's the assumption before yeah. somebody would read it. And I'm glad you mentioned the female gaze, right? Because that's a lot of it. The male gaze kind of pervades all genres of fiction, right? Yeah. Yes. It's presumed to be the normal, um, which is problematic for a bunch of different reasons. Um, There's the, uh, have you ever seen like the Twitter feed of male writers writing female characters? Like the... No, I only say no because I try to avoid Twitter. <laughs> okay, no, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Um, there are some parts of Twitter that are, that everyone would do well to avoid. Um, every once in a while, um, the uh, romance community, Romance Landia, as we refer to it jokingly, um, <laughs> gets together and we discuss things like male writers, how male writers. Um, address writing female characters, especially with regards to physical features and Mm -hmm. interactions. And there are a lot of men who are exceptionally famous for their writing who don't write female characters especially well. Mm -hmm. Um, And, or at least don't seem to have a very firm grasp on their female characters as human beings and people. Mm -hmm. Um, So... (laughs) Um, so there's a lot of that, um, but that's always kind of the assumed, um, that's the assumed norm. It's like um, Suicide Squad, 
Suicide Squad. Harley Quinn and Suicide Squad versus Harley Quinn in Birds of Prey. Are you mm-hmm. familiar with both films? Um, Harley Quinn, not Birds of Prey. Okay. Um, Suicide Squad, written by a dude, directed by a dude. Harley Quinn is a much more highly sexualized, um, highly flighty and flippant and gum-popping valley girl kind of trope. Yeah. Um, a lot of her... Uh, a lot of the shots used in the film are uh, very boob focused mm-hmm. um, and or are focused in a way that accentuates her as an uh, ideal sexualized person. Right. Whereas in Birds of Prey, she's, it's the same character. She's the same actress playing her. However, she's much more realized as a fuller human being a mm-hmm. lot of the stuff are more of her in her face doing things as opposed to her standing there being cute right and, and that, is, is that the writing then or is that the premise of the story all of the above i'd say it's somewhat premise i'd also argue it's somewhat directional mm-hmm. and the cinematography is a little different in terms of the overall focus yeah. I discuss this with my wife a lot. We're, you know, we try new shows on Netflix and Amazon, like a lot of people are doing right now. Um, mm-hmm. And we, we tried one, um, the magicians. Are you familiar with that? I you know, seen... kind of an urban fantasy Academy, you know, the, yeah, I'm, the I'm college familiar. age kids and mm-hmm. not to get too specific about shows, but like the thing to notice is that, yeah, the the women are sexualized and they can be hot or whatever, but the men kind of aren't. Yes. And and yet the audience for urban fantasy in these things is predominantly female. And this is you know, something I'm curious to explore with you is like how is that happening? I guess first of all, and how are you how are you approaching your writing in a way to make it universal? Like what shifts? I think that the non-sexualized male characters in these urban fantasy, I think it has to do with which stories are being chosen to be told. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I know lots of women put forth work that just gets overlooked. Mm -hmm. And so eventually the stuff that gets made is the stuff that appeals to the people making those decisions. Mm-hmm. And those people ne- aren't necessarily um, the same folks who are producing the material. Um, as far as looking towards a more universal eye, I try to make I try to make each character as whole as possible. You know, mm-hmm. they like peanut butter and jelly. Okay. What do they watch on TV? Um, I blame D&D because D&D, Dungeons and Dragons, has character sheets. Mm -hmm. And these character sheets allow you to roll out these characters, make these characters as awesome as you want with specific traits and specific things to them. But there are also lesser known things about them. You know, he's left-handed. He doesn't hear well out of his right ear. She has two teeth that are broken that she's very, you know, self-conscious about. She, mm-hmm. I find that 
by focusing on the smaller details of a character, you can kind of inform the larger details of the character as well. Mm. And so that's how I look at it. Nobody is entirely their stereotype. Nobody is entirely how they present externally. Everybody's got this really interesting internal world going on. And so I try to find ways to bring readers into that for all the characters. Great. Yeah, that makes sense. Just making them people, right? Yeah. Yeah. And many people are like sexually motivated or not, right? Regardless Mm of gender and background and all those things. Absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned your your background. You mentioned a couple professions like police dispatching and court transcription. And I'm I'm curious how these like day job experiences inform your writing and the stories you can tell. You know what? Honestly, um, for a long time, especially towards the early parts of my published career, um, work stuff would bleed over into my writing because the truth is a lot stranger than fiction. Um, mm. I live in a town that is known for its blandness. Um, I mean, it's a great, it's a fun place to be, but it's not, it's not LA. It's not Chicago. It's not very, you know, robustly exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the Midwest. Okay. And at the same time, once the sun goes down, the city gets weird. Like, the weird turns pro. It's amazing. <laughs> the weird turns pro. I like that line. That should be a tag for a book. <laughs> okay. This is uh it's one of those things that's just amazing to me. And so many things happen in the city that nobody knows about. Hmm. Um, and there are, there are scenes from things that I've worked that have made it into my writing. There's, um, there's a specific one I'm thinking of where a uh, skull goes rolling down the street. Um, the story attached to that is actually quite humorous to me, horrific to other people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but it, that happened, that actually happened. Um, so um, yeah, there, there are lots of things. I try to view life as a series of little tiny stories and mm-hmm. sometimes they just, you know, things that I do creep in. Um, we went to Boston last year. Uh, we were in Boston for a while. We were in Maine and Salem for a while. Um, and so we ended up, those things ended up in my first book in the, my current series. Um, parts of Boston, parts of Salem ended up as background settings of my, the current series I'm working on. Um, so yeah, places I go, things I do, everything in life can eventually bleed over into what I work on. Right. I, I try to marry them. Right. And I guess you'd get this view um, working on the inside a little bit of the more human, less sensationalized view of people or heroes, considered hero, heroes or villains, right? Yeah. Yes, and I always I always try to seek that out in characters anyway. I want characters to be complicated because we're all complicated. Nobody is 100% a hero. Nobody is 100% a villain. Hmm. Um, even villains love their mom. <laughs> right. You know, you know, if I mean, they don't, there probably may be some true evil going on. Exactly, exactly. If you kick puppies, chances are good you're entirely evil and I have no use for you. But... <laughs> 
But yes, even villains love their mom. And so with that adage in mind, you know, you try to look at um, like the main villain in book one of my series right now is um, he's he's a jackass. He is. He's very entitled. He's very much into himself. Mm -hmm. um, But underneath that, the reader gets to experience there's a lot of anger and a lot of resentment and a lot of hurt mm-hmm. and it comes from a very specific place within him, which is a legitimate grievance. It's not all just him being entitled and feeling like everything should be his because that's his right. He has some legitimate grievances that are not being addressed and have right. not been addressed to this point. So, you know, not everybody is awesome all the time and not everybody is terrible all the time. And I try to make that as abundantly clear in my characters as I can. So what are you working on or toward right now in terms of goals and craft or challenges? Um, right now I am, uh, I'm working on book three in my series. It's called The Sugar Moon. Um, and I'm trying to write this whole series has been kind of an adventure. Hmm. Um, trying to craft a six book series. This is the first time I've ever tried to tell a story over this large an arc. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to find pacing with that. I'm trying to um, trying to develop characters within this arc, but also give them their own separate mini arcs. Um, finding a way to pace everything, not give too much away villain wise. Um, being able to have all of this together in one compiled piece is going to be amazing once it's done, mm-hmm. but <laughs> everything about it thus far has been a learning experience. And because I don't like, generally speaking, I don't like cliff- cliffhangers and for whatever reason I'm writing them. I'm not sure what that's about. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. uh, I'm, this, is, this is me attempting something entirely new. Uh, my goal is to finish the six book series. I have a, another uh, series planned for after that um, within the same uh, world. Mm. And, you know, I am still working on um, other, I have other short stories. I do have other ideas that have kind of cropped up as I've worked on this that I have on tape, uh, on tape. Oh, wow. Okay. Cause again, I am that old. I have <laughs> um, that are on four track. Yeah, Fortnite, exactly. You know, something in a uh, cassette, actually. Um, I have things that I'm, I'm working on that I just, I talk out real quick so that I keep the idea and then I go back to working on what I have in front of me. And so I want get, to get to those eventually, too. I, I'm always thinking of other things, especially, I know as a writer, you shouldn't get bored. Okay, mm-hmm. but sometimes you know when I'm working on something, my mind just wanders off and wants to do something else, mm-hmm. and it wanders off to tell a different story. Which, yay, okay, great, that's fine. Um, and sometimes I have to get enough of that story out of the way to where I can get back to what I want to work on or what I, I need to work on in front of me. And mm-hmm. so I have, you know, 20 minutes of me discussing a plot outline or a character description or whatever saved. Mm. on my phone ready to go as soon as i finish what i'm working on currently yeah my goal is to get to those eventually i i personally struggle with that 
I, I, you know, I'll capture these ideas and articulate them and hold on to them until I feel like they're at a point where I could write them if I wanted to. Um, mm -hmm. But you mentioned, so you're, you're doing a six book series and you've got another one kind of in the queue that would be related. And as you're capturing these ideas of things to get to eventually, like, is that in the back of your mind that, well, if I stick to my plan, I'm not going to be writing these for you know, quite a while, if at all. Well, I know that's in the back of my mind. You know, I, I'm always afraid that the last book I finished is the last book I get to finish. Mm. And so I always, I have plans and ideas, you know, kind of sketched out as far as what I want to get to in these next books. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I work very hard to remain focused on the plan. Um, as long as there's a plan in place, we can make something happen. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, eventually, I, eventually I'm not going to be writing in this world. Eventually I'll be writing something else. And it's very possible that I could be, I've written multiple things simultaneously before um, and been, you know, of absolutely no use to anyone in my real life. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's also happened where I've published one thing that I was working on separate from the main story I was working on. And then the next story I publish is the big one I was working on previously. So um, I'm not necessarily confined to single story. I would just prefer single stories. Mm -hmm. mm. And so I try to keep that in mind as well, that I'm not necessarily directly confined, but right now I'm on a deadline. So I am a little bit confined. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens to you when you're on a deadline? What changes? Um, it's always a clock in the back of my head. You know, it's always, a, it's always a clock and a calendar in the back of my head. Okay, at this point, you should be here. At this point, you should be here. Um, and with, like, the date circled in, you know, bright red ink in the back of my mind, you have to be done by this day. You know, anything else that's going on, you have to be done by this day. Mm -hmm. And so that's always kind of the background radiation in my head is I and have to have this done by then. So when you hit one of those deadlines and right and you, you nail it, you done, do you celebrate? Do you celebrate in a small way at a big way or how do you? Yeah. Well, depending on the story. Yes. Um, I'm not above tattooing myself in joy. I'm not, above, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not above imbibing. Um, I'm not above, above going out to dinner and hanging out with friends and just, it's this weird euphoria that comes with having free space in your brain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like the wind is whistling through and it's so pretty and clean. And, and you know that it's going to get messy again here very quickly. But for yeah. the moment, we're just going to be really joyful that it's done. Um, so, yes, I, you know, it really depends on how I feel in that moment as to how I celebrate. But I do, I have been known to mark myself up and or pierce myself and or go out and, drink and or eat way too much <laughs> well sounds good to have a, a reward that you know absolutely, absolutely. like it yeah and when you keep going too it does because you know especially like the series i have a tattoo planned at the end of the series so that's kind of my my background background goal yeah. you know when this when the six books are done i want to get my shoulder done and so I have it all planned out. I have the image already 
taken care of. I've got a separate image I want to get done on my other arm. And so I have things planned for once this is done. So the closer I get to that, the more ebullient I can become about it. Mm. That's great. Yeah. So for people who, oh, actually, before I ask that, um, I want to hear about this aspiring screenwriter thing and why this is, you know, why this is a goal and why this is a maybe later. Well, it's not even a maybe later. It's the, I have to get better at it first. Mm. Um, You know, right now it's still very rudimentary and it's not nearly anything I would want to show anyone Mm. um, or feel comfortable showing anyone. Uh, I want to write television shows. I think, um, honestly, I was really inspired by, uh, justified by uh, the take they did on Elmore Leonard's characters uh, that FX had on, you know, bringing Raylan and Boyd to life and having all of that together was just absolutely amazing to me. Um, And so I want to be able to tell stories. It seems like the next logical step, given how visual I am and how I see my stories and how I want the reader to experience them visually. It seems like the next logical step is to want to be able to write for television. Yeah. And so what's, what's like the main challenge that crops up with doing the screenwriting then right now? Um, structurally, it's very different. It's fundamentally different than prose. Mm-hmm. Um, additionally, a lot of the, a lot of the description of flourishes that I'm normally good at conveying uh, prose wise are truncated or conveyed in a different means. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's a lot more dialogue and uh, dialogue oriented. It's, there are a lot of like really incredibly minute fundamental differences that keep tripping me up. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to, um, I have a story that I would like to convert into a a screenplay and so I've been kind of tinkering with that trying to find a way to make that happen Mm. and it's nowhere near close to done by any Mm. means Mm. it sounds like a good challenge to have yeah Yeah. you know if you're challenged you're learning um, you learn other stuff besides what you intend to Um, you learn about things about yourself you learn you know, what makes you as a person tick and you as a writer tick, you know, there's nothing wrong with learning. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with learning. Yeah. Well, for people who want to find you, how can they do that? Uh, I am on Amazon primarily. Um, Mm -hmm. If you just uh, go to the search bar, type in Alexis D. Craig, um, you will find pretty much everything I've written. Um, I've contributed just a few short story compilations, but mostly it's uh, single title work. Mm-hmm. Um, I write everything from fluffy, silly romance to romantic suspense um, to paranormal. So okay. whatever floats your boat, you can find it. Whatever floats your boat. Yeah. Awesome. It's been a pleasure having you on the show, Lexi. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Ethan. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Fearless Storyteller. As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover the Fearless Storyteller podcast.